Welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Our study of the book of Daniel continues as we are in the ninth chapter and have been carefully looking at verses 24 to 27 over the last eight weeks. We are still not finished with this very important prophecy section of four verses, and today Doug has titled the lesson, The Covenant. This is very important for us to understand as we near the last days. You will certainly want to have your Bible open to the ninth chapter of Daniel as we begin. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Our class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in the Lavorne Hall located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building on our downtown campus. We would certainly enjoy and rejoice if you were to visit our class. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so without further wait, here now is our longtime teacher and my good friend, Doug Brady. Today will be a little different than what we've been doing up to now. Up to now, I've been taking Scripture and trying to show you what the Scripture says, and there are people, obviously, who disagree with what I say, but I let them go their way, and I go the Lord's way, and... But today, we're going to see maybe a little bit extrapolation, a little bit of seeing what may happen. We can't guarantee what's going to happen, but what may happen, and I want you to keep that in mind. But before we start, there's something I always want to remind us of because we need to understand it. And that is this prophecy in Daniel chapter 9 is not about the church. It's about Israel. See, you keep saying that all the time. I'm getting tired of hearing you say that. Yes, well, it's important for us to remember, and we will be reminded of it today. Now, because it's not about the church, does that mean it, it has no effect on the church? Of course not. Do you remember we've talked about a pause? Well, that pause was the church. Now, they didn't know that, but that's what it, it is. And so you're going to see that as we go along. Well, before we start, let's open in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we can gather together here and open your book. Help me to be faithful in sharing the things that you've showed me this week, the things I've been able to learn. I thank you for the opportunity I've had to study this week and to find things. And I pray, Father, that you'll help me to share them in a way that's easily understandable so that we can all grasp it. And so, Father, I pray that you'll keep the distractions out of this room and empower, direct, and control the teacher. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. amen. Now let's look back at Daniel uh, 9.27. And you remember we talked last time just about the first line or two of that verse. We talked about the pronoun or the antecedent of the pronoun he. Do you remember that? Uh, that should be highlighted there. Yes, he. And who was the he? The Antichrist. 
the coming prince of the people that destroyed the city and the sanctuary in 70 AD. We talked about the term make, and it means to create an original covenant, to make a firm. It means to something that you've started that you are promising to keep no matter what. Now, it's a lie. We'll see that in a second, but that's what it says. Then we saw this term covenant. What does the word covenant mean? It can mean a contract. It can mean a specialized contract like a treaty or an alliance or a pledge or a mortgage, something like that. But it's a contract where it's a bilateral agreement, not a unilateral contract, bilateral. Both parties come to the table and agree to something. Then we talked about the many. Who was the many? Israelites. And then one week, what was one week? Seven years, the final week of the 70 weeks. The final week. That's what I want you to see now as we begin to look at something. Because what I've tried to explain is that this four verses here is a very important parameter. And if I was trying to explain it, I would try and use the analogy of a home being built. Some of you know a lot about home being built, homes being built. Some of you don't know too much. But if you were to look at a progress of a home being built where they have laid the foundation, they put in the rough plumbing and electrical, and they have what they call framed it, where the two before studs are all around, and you can see them going across uh, up on the roof. But will that keep out any wind, rain, weather? No. That's Daniel 9, 24 through 27. Let's look at that. That's what that is. Daniel 9, 24 and 27. But the next step after that is to put on the exterior siding in the roof so that you can close the house. And you see it like that? And that's Matthew 24, 25. It fleshes out. But then you put in the interior, the insulation, the finished electrical plumbing, HVAC. That's Revelation 6, Revelation 6 through 19, chapter 6 through 19. It is the final fleshing out. It gives the most details of these events. We are going to be looking to see how this applies, some a little bit today and more next week when we're going to look at Matthew 24 and see what it's saying about what Daniel 9, 24 says, because Jesus quotes Daniel. But what I want you to remember here as we look through this, in Daniel 9, 24 through 27, who's it about? Israel. Matthew 24, 25, who's it about? Israel. Revelation 6 through 19, who's it about? It's Israel. Israel. When a preacher stands up and tells you, well, in Matthew 24, this, it says this, we as the church need to be aware and do this. That's not talking about the church. It's talking about Israel. Now, we have looked extensively at the he, the Antichrist. We've looked extensively at the timing, the week. We have looked extensively at the fact that a covenant was made and it was made with Israel. But let me, let me ask you something now. Some of you don't know this, but we have an expert with us today. His name's Doug Atkins. And Doug has been a practicing attorney for over 50, what is it? How long, Doug? 
58 years. Now, Doug, would you ever tell your client, just go ahead and sign that contract. You don't need to read it. You'd never do that, would you? In fact, you might say this to him, it's all right if you don't read it as long as I read it. You got to have your attorney read the contract or you're in trouble. Now, you know, he's represented people like the Dallas Mavericks and a bunch of really high-powered things. The contracts, you know, that they give him a very fine print and multiple, multiple pages. So what we want to do today is try and read the contract, the covenant. What are the terms, conditions, and promises set forth in the covenant? Now, Daniel doesn't tell us too many of those. He just says they signed a contract. But we are going to try at least look at two of the primary terms or conditions in that covenant today. Now, before we start, I want you to see that Isaiah has told us about this covenant. And he's told us this about this covenant in chapter 28, starting in verse 15, where he says, Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death. And with Sheol, we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes it by. Understand what's happening there. He's, these Israelites are saying, when the, pro, the persecution comes, it won't come to us because we made a, this covenant. Are they accurate? I would say they are accurate for 1,040 days. You say, 1,040 days? Where do you see 1,040 days in the Bible? Well, we'll have to get to that. He says, the overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood a refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a testing stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Wouldn't that be great if that was what he did in our country? Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies and waters will overflow the secret place and your covenant with death will be canceled and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you will become its trampling place. In effect... He's saying, you made a covenant with the devil, and you relied on the wrong person. Now, as I said, Daniel doesn't provide us with too much information, but one thing he does say about this covenant, one of the things in a contract you want to look for, let's say it's a lease, you want to know what? How long is it for? Here he's telling us exactly how long it is. How long is it? Nobody knows? Seven years. Seven years. That would be, if I can calculate this correctly, 2,520 days. Now we're using judgmental years, remember, 360 days a year. 2,520 days. Now, there's a number of scholars who have been studying the Bible, what it says in Daniel, what it says in other places, what it says in Revelation who believe that the tribulation is divided into two parts. Two parts. Each of those parts is 
260 days, half and half, exactly in half. I have come to believe that's not the case. You say, you don't believe that the second half is 1,260 days? No, I do. Now, I want you to think about this a second. Does God always divide things evenly? Look at the 70 weeks. How many divisions were there for that? Three. 49 years or seven weeks. 434 years or 62 weeks. And then one week. So it was three parts. I'm going to suggest to you today that this seven-year tribulation period from God's perspective is divided into three parts. And we're going to go back and look at some things that I couldn't tell you about before because we didn't have enough background. So we start out, how many days is this? 2,520 days. Now, have we ever seen a period of days mentioned before now? In the book of Daniel. Yes. Where? How about, uh, I don't think it, it permeates as much as you think, but how about Daniel 8? Did we see a time period in Daniel 8? Sure did. What was it? Well, that's, I'm glad we sure did then. But uh, speaking for my favorite Amalekite, he's being uh, rather uh, shy today. He would tell you to look in Daniel 8, chapter 13. And, and look what it says here. Then I heard a holy one speaking. Now, this is Daniel talking, and his holy one is referring to as an angelic being. And I heard a holy one speaking. Another holy one said to that particular one who was speaking, how long will the vision... Now, he's talking about a vision that Daniel is seeing. How long will this vision... And then he's going to say what's in the vision. So I want you to look at this carefully. He says... You have said to me, or how long will the vision about the regular sacrifice? So we're talking about a regular sacrifice first, right? Is that correct? Do you see that in the verse? How long will the regular sacrifice, while, or as, or after the transgression causes horror, so that as to both the holy place and the host will be trampled? Three things that are occurring here. There's regular sacrifices. There's a transgression that's going to cause horror. What would be another name for that? Abomination of desolation. What is then going to happen after that abomination of desolation? The holy place and the host. Who's the host? Israel will be trampled. The kind of trampling he's talking about is not a fun thing. It's a horrible thing. In fact... As we're going to see later, Zechariah predicts two-thirds of the Jewish population alive on the earth at that time will die. Imagine if two-thirds of American citizens, now not illegal aliens, but American citizens were to die. Well, gee, if we did that, illegal aliens might be 25% of the population. But anyway, we're not talking about that. We're talking about what's happening. Now, the question is, what is the time period for those three things? 2,300 evenings and mornings at his days, and then the holy place will be restored. Now, does it give us a starting date, a starting time for this 2,300 days? Nope. Doesn't say that. What does it say in this verse? Does it say in this verse anywhere there's a starting time for that 2,300 days? Does it say there's an ending time? Then 
the holy place will be restored. What is the holy place? The temple. Who is going to restore the temple? No. Jesus will. How long do you think he will take to do that? Now, I'm not asking how long it could take. How long do you think it will take? Three days. Why? Because that's what he said. He was foreshadowing it when he talked about his body. And when he's going to actually rebuild the temple, three days. Now, three days. So that's the end. Now go back to the, to the uh, slide before, or the picture. Hit it again. So what we've got in this seven-year period I'm going to show you, we've got 2,300 days that end at the same time that the 2,520 days end. You see that? All right. So we've now got a division of two here. I want you to see this. And through his shrewdness, and this is the prefigured Antichrist, he will cause deceit to succeed by his influence, and he will magnify himself in his heart, and he will destroy many. Now we know when it says many who he's talking about, right? Israel, who are at ease. Why? Because they made a treaty. And now you're seeing a glimpse of the third term of the treaty. But we're going to go on. And he will even oppose the prince of princes. Notice how princes capitalize, that's, that's the Lord Jesus Christ. But he will be broken without human agency. And the vision of the evenings and the mornings. This is important now to see what he's saying about this. This vision of the evening and morning, which he has, which has been told is true. You see how he focuses on that? It's true. This will happen. And keep, but keep the vision secret. Who's he talking to? Daniel. Don't tell anybody. This is a secret. I'm telling you, don't tell anybody. Don't explain it to them. For it pertains to many days in the future. I would put it to you that that's talking about the tribulation. And it is many days in the future. I mean, for Daniel, 2,600 years in the future. Now, let's look at this division again. We know that there's this 2,300-day period, and it ends at the end of the seven years. We know there's another period, do we not, that ends at the seven years. The Great Tribulation, 1,260 days. So now we have 1,000, we have three. But what's this small part in the first? What that small part in the first is, is 220 days. What? Could this be? What I'm going to suggest to you that these scriptures, when you put them together, show you there's a covenant. It's for seven years. That's the first term in this contract. The second term is, I am going to allow you to rebuild your temple. And it's going to take 120 days to rebuild it. Then what happens in the first part of that 2300 days, did it say? No the, first, no, the first part of the 2300. What did it say happens? 220 days to rebuild. In the 2300 days, what did it say would be the first thing that happens then? Sacrifices. They're going to start sacrificing. Then there's an event that occurs. The abomination of desolation right in the middle. What happens to the sacrifices then? They stop. Now the transgression of horror 
and the trampling underfoot. That's happening in that last or third period of time. Now, what do we want to understand the abomination of desolation to be? To make it simple, here's what it is. When a man goes into the holy place in the temple of God and says, I'm God, worship me. Did Antiochus do that? Yes, he did. Now, some people want to say that this man was prefigured by Titus. Titus never did that. But somebody will. The beast, the Antichrist, he's going to say he's God. And we'll see that. And so this is something to shock you and to say how horrible this abomination of tribulation will be. Somebody had a question. The last slide, slide that you had to me is kind of confusing because you're showing the 2,300 in so many days and the 220. That adds up to seven years, and yet in the middle you tap on the other. It really should be. The 1,260 days occurs during the same part of the 2,300 days. That's why I did it like that and covered it up. They're both talking about the same thing. See, the 2,300, so that everybody is clear, the 2,300 days, as I see it, incur sacrifices to start with, and then the transgression that curses the whore and stops the sacrifices. Right there at the abomination of desolation. Are you with me on that? All right. So, after looking at that and seeing those time periods, I think that we want to make certain we understand. Abomination of desolation. Where does it say that the Antichrist will do that? Will sit himself, not just a statue, but himself in the Holy of Holies and say, I'm God, worship me. And if you don't, you will die. Second Thessalonians. The Amalekite comes through today. Look at that. Second Thessalonians 2, starting in the second part of verse 3. The man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself above every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, displaying himself to be God. Displaying himself, and for 1,000... 260 days, he tries to exterminate the Jewish race because they won't worship him. Look, how do you know that? Look what it says in Zechariah chapter 13, starting in verse 8. And it will come upon, about in all the land, declares the Lord, that two parts in it will be cut off and perish but the third will be left in it, and I will bring the third through the fire and refine them as silver is refined and test them as gold is tested, and they will call on my name, and, they will, and I will answer them, and I will say, they are my people, and they shall say, Yahweh is my God. That's the prediction that Zechariah made, and it's a horrifying prediction. Now, who is it that doesn't want to hear this the most? The Jews. After World War II, what was their catchphrase? Never again. After the Holocaust, never again. And yet the Holocaust is going to be nothing compared to what's going to happen in this tribulation. And they are the ones who make the covenant or the contract with 
the guy possessing, uh, being possessed by Satan. Yes. The, uh, in, in uh, the last seven years, is that the time of Jacob's trouble? That is considered also the time of Jacob's trouble. That's what they call it in the Old Testament. And uh, maybe they, and they call it also the day of the Lord. John, did you have a question? Uh, just to comment how amazing it is, God's word, how it's uh, weaved together. We're here for Second Thessalonians, written something hundreds of years after uh, Isaiah and Daniel. And yet, we're talking about the same thing. It's because, in actuality, it's the same author. Bonnie. I was just thinking, it's, to think about the Jews being so uh, compliant. I'm thinking about Israel right now, what they've done with their own vaccination program. Well, let's, we're going to look more at that in a minute. Now, I think the second key element or term in this contract is to rebuild the temple. Now, is there such a place as a temple now? No. Temple does not exist, at least on earth. Temple does not exist. Now, if you were, I've done some deep diving into some of the research available on this issue. Many of the rabbis and religious leaders in the state of Israel are now saying that Israel cannot be a complete national entity until they replace the temple destroyed by the Romans. We want back what they took from us. And that's the temple. And they want that temple back. And you would think to construct it would bring war with Muslim powers. Because to construct it, what are they going to have to do? destroy the, the mosque of the Dome of the Rock. Now, this is the Temple Mount. I want you to look at that. Uh, with the gold, I want you to see this. The gold top, that's the mosque of the Dome of the Rock right there. Right down here is the mosque of Al-Aqsa. Those two mosques are there on the Temple Mount. Do you see any room for a temple up there? Some of them want to say, well, wait a second. Wait, wait, wait a second. They didn't pick the right spot for the Mosque of the Dome of the Rock. It's not on the rock, really, where Abraham sacrificed, they would say Ishmael, but where Abraham sacrificed Isaac. It's an, that's another place, and they missed it. So you could build the Where do you have room to build this temple? And let's say if that is, but now remember, you've got to place the Holy of Holies right on top of that rock. Even if you built the temple and could somehow squeeze it in there, you want to go to the high holy temple, the house of God, and come out and look at the mosque of the Dome of the Rock. That's not going to happen. The people in Israel, especially the, the Temple Institute, they have started building, and they have built every implement, every furnishing, every piece of equipment they need. And they have spared no expense. Look at this. This is the golden lampstand or the golden menorah. That's gold. Do you know how much that costs? Three million dollars. Just the menorah itself. Now notice the size of it. Down here are people. You see that? You see the massive size of that? 
Now I want you to consider that's going to fit in the temple, the massive size of that temple. There's no room for a mosque of the Dome of the Rock there when you build a temple. To have, that's just one of the three pieces that is going to fit into the holy place. Not the Holy of Holies, but the holy place, along with the Temple of Showbread, which I've seen pictures of that they have built, along with the altar of golden in, the golden altar of incense, uh, where they offer the prayers of the people. That's going to be there too. Everything they have done to have all the implements they need. In addition to that, they have started preparing everything they need for the priesthood. This is the breastplate of the high priest. You think, well, no way, isn't that supposed to be metal? No, this is built exactly to the standards that Moses set out and brought down uh, from Mount Horeb. You see the 12 uh, stones. If you look carefully, those stones have something engraved on them because each one replies to the, the throne of Israel. And they also have prepared the golden headpiece for the high priest. Uh, this is a picture of it. Now, it's interesting uh, to see this, and, and I'm going to lean out here, but you'll see right here, they say, and you shall make a, the headpiece, and they say, in the name that is holy, it's Hashem. And that's what they say, and that's the way they write their Bible. When you look down here, no, this word right here is to Yahweh. You see, they won't say Yahweh. They say Hashem, which means the name. But it says on there is written Yahweh. And that's the, 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 the name that is on there. That's done. They have a school that's been going on for years for priests to train them how to do the sacrifices. They have put out information that they have in their possession a perfect red heifer. Yeah, who developed it? And they got, a, they got Israel a perfect red heifer. I've seen video where those uh, priests and rabbis are over there with microscopes going over this, this animal looking for one white hair, one that's not red. And they can't find one because they're all red. It's the perfect red heifer. Now, I told you that they had all of the implements, all of the equipment and, and furnishings they need. That's not exactly true. There is one piece they don't have. I have seen two, there are two separate, if you were to go on a website of a guy named Billy Crone, some of you have heard of Billy Crone, others of you have not, but if you go on his website and you look or at prophecywatch.com, you can see interviews with two rabbis. Now, not at the same time. You know, you don't want to interview someone at the same time with someone else so they can mix their answers. No, especially when you're investigating, say, prepare for trial. You take one witness, you talk to them, you see what they're going to say. Take another witness outside of their presence, you talk to them, see what they're going to say. So they interviewed two different rabbis, two different times. Each of them basically said this. We got to have everything except one thing, the Ark of the Covenant. But we know where it is. And we are going to get it when the time comes. And no one's going to be able to stop us. Then they asked both of them, what do you need then to build the temple? And they said, permission. That's all they need. Everything else has been prepared. Everything else is ready. Everything else has been stockpiled. They have the blueprints 
And if you get certain uh, DVDs from Billy Crone, he has a copy of the 3D animation walkthrough of the temple. And you see that, and you see walking into and through that temple all the way to these massive doors where you go into the holy place and then the holy of holies, and you think, that's the way the Antichrist is going to walk. He's going to walk right in there and set up a throne and sit there. And proclaim himself to be God. Mark first. His hand went up first. If they need permission what, to build this temple, that would presume that the dome of the rock would be gone and the El Aqsa Mosque gone. And if you carry that logic, is there a possibility that we... As always, I'm going to stop you right there. You're way ahead of me. Hold on. I think we're going to answer that question. Yes. I was going to mention that several years ago they found a particular shell, mollusk, that has a, the ink, the color, the actual... That they need to make things like that uh, breastplate. It's amazing how things are coming together, isn't it? The actual deal was in the basement of the Vatican. <laughs> I, I mean, I've read that and read that. Well, whoever read that or whoever wrote that, I think is lying to you. But, you know, Malachites, they believe all kinds of things. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, we ain't going to have to talk about you in a little minute. You've looked at all this. They have spent millions and millions of dollars to get things ready. Now, here's this, I was so excited about this because uh, this is a part that I've never heard of or thought of or seen before. What came from the Saudis? Uh, they're high. Uh, look at this. Saudis say Temple Mount and al Asqa not important to Islam. Islam. In further departure from Palestinian narratives, Saudis recognize Jewish connection to the Temple Mount. Have you ever heard Muslims talk like that? I'm coming in just a second to you after I finish these. All right, give me the next one. Saudis come out against the Temple Mount. Saudi Twitter users say Muslims should only be praying towards Mecca, not the Dome of the Rock. And finally, Saudi shocker, Temple Mount is Jewish. Muslims should pray towards Mecca. Now, what were you going to say? All right. So there is a chance that there can be an agreement. I think those things have been said, but I think no agreement can be reached. And I think, it is my opinion from reading the scriptures, that I believe the only way there's going to be a temple built is if there's a war. And really, two of them. Two of them. Does the scripture suggest that there may be a war coming soon? I'm going to tell you yes. And I'm going to tell you I have put Three passages attached to your notes at the end, which are appendices. The first one is Appendix A, and it is Psalm 83. I believe that Psalm 83 predicts a war that's going to occur, and it's going to set it out. Let's look at, at this uh, Psalm just a second. Turn over, if you would, real quick to Appendix A. And let's, let's see what it has to say. A song, a psalm of Asaph, O God, do not remain quiet. Do not be silent. And O God, do not be still. Now, what is he doing? 
He is asking God to do something, not to remain silent and not to be inactive, but instead to do something. All right? For behold, your enemies make an uproar, and those who hate you have exalted themselves. They make shrewd plans against your people and conspire together against your treasured ones. They have said, come, let us wipe them out as a nation. Now, who are they saying they want to wipe out as a nation? Israel. Israel. That is, the, your treasured ones, your people. For they have conspired together with one mind. Against you, they make a covenant. Now, who is doing this? I want you to see, this is important as we look through this. Who's coming together, making a plan to eliminate Israel? The tents of Edom and the Ishmaelites, Moab and the Hagrites, Gibal, Ammon, uh-oh, Amalek, the Amalite, Amalekites, they are involved in this too, despicable. Philistia with the inhabitants of Tyre, Assyria has also joined with them, and they have become a help to the children of Lot. Now let's look and see if we've got a map of this. You will see here, of course, here's Israel. The ones he mentioned, Philistia, or Amalek, uh, the Ishmaelites, Edom, Moab, Ammon, the Higrites, uh, Philistia, Tyre, Gibal, and Assyria. Those all are just surrounding Israel. They are the close allies, I mean, not allies, the close inhabitants or neighbors of Israel. That's who is making this plan for a war with Israel to destroy them. What does they want to say? What if you hear them say, we're going to push her into the sea. We're going to wipe her out so that nobody remembers her again. That's exactly what Psalm 83 is saying. And you need to see that. They say, come, let us wipe them out as a nation, that the name of Israel be remembered no more. That's in verse 4. This choir director, he predicts the, the, the plans for and the forces that are going to join together in a war. He does not, either he doesn't know or he doesn't say, he doesn't predict the outcome of that war. What he does is pray for one particular outcome. I want you to notice that in Psalm 83. The first thing he says here is this. Deal with them. He's talking to God. Deal with them, this group of, of uh, enemies that we've just outlined. Deal with them as with Midian, as with Caesarea and Jabin in the torrent of Kishon. Now, most of you say, what in the world is that? Well, if you were to read the fourth chapter of the book of Judges, you would find the story of Barak and Deborah. And they destroyed the Midianites, even though they were vastly superior force. He's saying, do that. He's now going to say again, make their nobles like Oreb and Zeb and all their princes like Zeba and Zalmunna. What in the world is that? That is Judges chapter 6, 7, and 8, a guy by the name of Gideon. 300 men against 120,000. And they destroyed them. 
because of God's intervention. So what is he praying for? Yes, we'll fight, but God, you intervene on our behalf. Now, I want you to think about that just a second, because this is the way God works many times. Do you remember the story when we first heard about those stinking Amalekites? And they started attacking Israel as they were going uh, through the wilderness. Do you remember? And they were attacking the ones at the stragglers. And Moses said, what should we do? And this is what God told him to do. And he took Joshua and he says, raise us an army and go out and fight the Amalekites. And you will fight them in this one particular valley. I, on the other hand, will go up to the top of the hill. And there I will pray. And he took with him his brother, uh, Aaron, and a guy named Shur. And they went up, and Moses started to pray. And he prayed in the normal way they would pray then, where they would stand and hold their hands up to God. Now, the Israelites, even though these Amalekites, they fought. That was their way of life, fighting and raiding. They were brigands and raiders. Israel had been slaves, but Israel is winning now this battle. Then Moses, he starts to get tired, and his hands go down. And what happens? Joshua starts losing. So what do Aaron and Shur do? They raise his hands for him, and they start winning. But then they're having a hard time still, putting their hands up, holding his hands up. So one of them gets a rock. Meanwhile, as they're getting a rock, the Israelites start losing. They put the rock under Moses, sit him down, and then they on each side hold his hands up. And by the end of the day, Israel wins a great victory. Now, I want you to think about this just a second. Does Israel win if they say, you know what, we, don't, we can just sit here because Moses is up there praying. If Moses doesn't pray, are they going to win no matter how hard they fight? It takes both. They have to fight, as God told them to fight. But when Moses prays, they win. And that is what he's praying for here. Because Barak and Deborah did the same thing. We will fight them, but you intervene on our behalf. I am convinced they will. God will. And they will win this war. And it will change things. Now all these people who are Muslim forces surrounding Israel are going to be wiped out. But now, that's not all the Muslims. Right, there's Egypt, and Turkey, and Syria, and Iran, and Afghanistan, and Iraq, all those people. They're still there. You think they're going to let them build a temple? No way. Well, that brings us to Ezekiel, chapter 38. That's Appendix B. Now, we're going to, you look in your notes because uh, I've picked out some things that I want you to see here uh, from Ezekiel 38. This passage was written by a true prophet, Ezekiel. And he first predicts that an enemy force will attack Israel. That's what he is saying in Appendix B. And, but it's interesting the way he says it's going to happen. Now, who is this force composed of? Let's look at the map. Magog, Rosh, Meshach, Tubal, Persia, Ethiopia, Put, Gomer, and Beg-Tagamon. 
you'll see all these from Libya down there to Ethiopia and Cush, all coming up through Egypt. And then you see Dedan, and she said, that's coming out of Saudi Arabia, over there with Persia, that's in Afghanistan, Iran, Iraq, Meshach, Tubal up there in Turkey, Togum, uh, even Gomer up there in a German position, and Magog in a Russian position. They're going together. Why? Because those two parties want the spoils. Historically, has Germany ever been a friend of Jews? No. They're going to join in on this too. This force will be brought together upon the mountains of Israel, just like Nebuchadnezzar was brought 2,600 years ago. Say, wait a second. Nebuchadnezzar made his own decision. No, he didn't. Look what it says in Isaiah 13. The oracle concerning Babylon, which Isaiah the son of Amos saw, a sound of tumult on the mountains, like that of many people, the sound of uproar of kingdoms, of nations gathered together, the Lord of hosts is mustering the army for battle. You think that's of his people? Oh, no. That's the ones he's going to use to chastise Israel. They are coming from a far country, from the farthest horizons. The Lord and his instruments of indignation to destroy the whole land. And you keep reading in Isaiah and it's clear this Babylon he brought. Now look what he's going to do to these people in this map in Ezekiel 38. And the word of the Lord came to me saying, Son of man, set your face toward Gog of the land of Magog and the prince of Rosh and Meshach and Tubal and the Pharisees and prophesy against him and say, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I am against you, O Gog, prince of Rosh, Meshach and Tubal. I will turn you about. I will put hooks into your jaws and I will bring you out all your army, all your horses, all your horsemen, all of them splendidly attired, a great company with buckler and shield, all of them wielding swords. Now, when does it say this is going to happen? Start looking verse eight. After many days, you will be summoned. In the latter years, you will come into the land that is restored from the sword, whose inhabitants have been gathered from the many nations to the mountains of Israel, which have been a continual waste. Are Israel continual waste now? Absolutely not. You talk about the green line over there. As you see, wherever Israelites live, it, the land flourishes. If that's where they are. That's where they're coming, and these forces are going to come against them. Look now down in verse 18. And it will come about on that day when God comes against the land of Israel, declares the Lord God, that my fury will mount up in my anger. Now, if I was a nation, I would not want God to say that about me. Look down in verse 21. And I will call for a sword against him on all my mountains, declares the Lord God, and every man's sword will be against his brother. With pestilence and with blood, I will enter into judgment with him. And I will rain on him and his troops and his many peoples who are with him a torrential rain with hailstones, fire, and brimstone. And I will magnify myself and I will make myself known in the sight of many nations and they will know that I am Yahweh. They're going to know dying, but they will know. Now, this map, now you see this with this war, we basically destroy all Muslim forces that can do anything. Now, can someone who is in control say, I'll guarantee you these things in this contract, and you can even build your temple. 
And once he makes that covenant, what starts? The seven-year period. And how long to build that? They say we can build it in under a year. They're going to build it in 220 days. I'm convinced. And that's happening. Now, Chris. What you're saying in a timeline is these two wars are going to happen before. I believe they will before the tribulation. Even possibly before the rapture. That is possible, yes. Wow. <laughs> what do you do with the fact that they're going to be burning weapons for seven years? Because there's going to be other wars coming on that you will see. The Antichrist is going to be conquering and to conquer. Mark. Yeah. It's seen, uh, in Ezekiel 38.4, which you read earlier, uh, it says, And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws and will bring thee. If you have to put hooks in somebody's jaws, it would, I would presume they didn't want to come. Well, that wasn't their plan. But they're going to feel forced to do it. And I think if you read a little farther, you'll see there's also some motivation as far as wealth. Now, what? Now, we think about this a second. You got this war in Psalm 83, and then not 38, 83. And you have this war in Ezekiel 38. What could start those kind of wars? Is there anything going on now that could start those? Now, I see somebody who's looking over there like they know. Let me read it to you. Starting verse 34 in chapter 49 of Jeremiah. That which came as the word of the Lord to Jeremiah the prophet concerning Elam at the beginning of the reign of Zedekiah, king of Judah, saying. Now, if Zedekiah is the king of Judah, what does that mean? Here's what I'm going to say. We're talking about during the time of Israel's last king, Jeremiah is making this, pro this uh, prophecy. And he says next in verse 35, thus says the Lord of hosts, Yahweh Sabaoth. Thus he says, behold, I am going to break the bow of Elam, the finest of their might, and I will bring upon Elam the four winds from the four winds of heaven and will scatter them to all those winds. And there will be no nation to which the outcasts of Elam will go. So I will shatter Elam before their enemies. And before these who seek their lives, I will bring calamity upon them. Even my fierce anger, declares the Lord. And I will send out the sword after them until I have consumed them. Then I will set my throne in Elam, and I will destroy out of it its kings and princes, declares the Lord. But it shall come about in the last days that I will destroy, I'll restore the fortunes of Elam, declares the Lord. Now what is it talking about here? This seems to be, number one, a mass destruction. A mass destruction that are going to force the inhabitants of Elam to leave and to scatter. And yet when they go to other nations, what will the other nations say? We don't want you. Uh-uh. Well, I think the important question is, who and where is Elam? Well, I've got a map. Elam was the territory which is now on the western side of Iran on the Persian Gulf. Do you see that? Now, you need to remember where Elam is right there because let's look at a modern-day map. This shows the nuclear locations that we have mapped from modern Iran. 
and you will notice the Bushehr power plant, um, a nuclear power plant, one of the most important ones they have. There's also a whole lot of missile silos. Has anybody heard anything recently about having some attack on Iran? If somebody did and there was a nuclear holocaust there, would that be a massive a killing situation? And would everybody have to leave? And would everybody, wherever they wanted to go, would people say, no, we don't want you. you got radioactive problems. We don't want your DNA in our country. Chernobyl. Yeah, just like Chernobyl. Do you see that? If Israel were to do that, could that not cause a Psalm 83 war? Yes, it could. Could that not also bring about an Ezekiel 38, 39 war? Well, wait. There has never been a time that I can remember in my lifetime where there's really this chance of a war just breaking out at any time, and now we're living in it. I think this can happen, and I think this could happen at any time. Now, if that is, what do we know for certain? We know for certain that that's going to clear the way for the temple to be built. The people over in Israel, many of them want to build that temple. The government says no because it'll cause a war or international problems. Those war problems are eliminated. There'll be no reason not to build the temple to complete their nation. And that particular political group, I think, will grow by leaps and bounds, and you will see a covenant made. Now, it seems to me that time is short. What should we be doing? It's praying, yes, but that's not what we should be doing primarily. Making disciples every way we can. Should we be embarrassed about what we're saying? Should we be intimidated because of what we're going to say? No, no, and no. The time is now. Yeah, I'm not a preacher. You know, I talked to, I talked to OS once, and I said, what's the difference between teaching and preaching? And he said, Doug, it may just be a matter of volume. <laughs> but be that as it may, I wanted to show you this today. You will notice that I'm going to talk at the end next. We don't have time today. We're going to talk about what I think is the third tenet or provision in that covenant, peace and security. I'm going to promise you, Israel, now, peace and security. We've gotten rid of these Arabs. We've gotten rid of these Muslims. They've gotten rid of the, these people who want to destroy you and push you into the sea. I'm going to guarantee now peace and safety. That's what's coming. Yes, ma'am. Peace and safety is the uh, name of the image in the UN. That's what they named it. Peace and safety, the UN, yes. They certainly can bring that. Yep. I don't know the answer to that. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for the time that we could meet today. Thank you for the time that we could share and see the nearness of time. Not that it's going to happen tomorrow, but boy, that would be awesome if you chose to do it tomorrow. But Father, I pray that you will help us to understand the obligation you have put on us where Jesus told us clearly that he came to seek and to save the lost. That's why he should talk to Samaritans. That's why he should talk to children. That's why he should talk to Greeks. 
not just the people of Israel. And then before he left, he told us, as the Father sent me, so send I you. Help us to be obedient. Father, I pray that this Saturday over in, uh, at Operation Care, that you will bring a massive amount of homeless people there and that you will supply those to gather that massive harvest that always happens on that day who can share their faith and who will do it aggressively and we will see thousands of people one to the Lord next Saturday. I pray that you will do that if it is your will, Father. And we know that you don't want any to perish. I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.